It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine The Latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the front line, including a dispatch from our foreign correspondent, James Kilner, on what's next for Yevgeny Prigozhin and can he stay alive. We discuss whether a state can remain neutral in the face of Russia's blatant disregard for international norms and ask a former tank unit commanding officer how could Ukraine breach Russia's extensive obstacle belt. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 29th of June one year and 125 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Durnley, foreign correspondent James Kilner, and former Royal Tank Regiment commander, Hamish de Breton-Gordon. I started with the latest updates from Ukraine. Firstly, the death toll of the uh, Kramatorsk pizza restaurant strike has risen to 12. Uh, rescue operations at the uh, at the site of the um, of the attack have been completed, according to this is from the regional governor of Donetsk, Pavlo Kirilenko. He said, uh, "I'm asking everyone do not neglect safety measures. Evacuate to safer regions of Ukraine." Uh, now, Britain's ambassador to Ukraine, Dame Melinda Simmons, she said in a tweet this morning, "The Russian attack on Kramatorsk is heartbreaking. Ukrainian children amongst those killed in a missile attack on a pizza restaurant, so obviously not a military installation, but a popular venue for residents and visitors. The rap sheet against Russia continues to grow." Uh, Ukrainian officials said that the restaurant was hit by an Iskander short-range ballistic missile. It was thought originally thought it was uh, an S three hundred. Uh, surface-to-air missile, but they're now saying an Iskander. And um, Ukraine's intelligence agency, the SBU, they said last night that uh, they'd detained an individual who lived in Kramatorsk and worked in a local gas logistics firm and said that this guy was an agent of Russia helping to identify targets. They said that the man had been taking a video of the restaurant and the surrounding area and sent it had sent it to Russian forces prior to the, prior to the attack. 
Ukraine's prosecutor general's office says that man has been arrested. They haven't named him yet or said what he's uh, if he's responded in any way. But they've uh, said he's arrested on suspicion of committing treason. That's an offence that carries a possible life sentence in Ukraine. And President Vladimir Zelensky last night in his uh, in his uh, video address, his nightly video address, he said anyone who helps Russian terrorists destroy lives deserves the maximum punishment. Now, Russian sources have said that the building that was targeted, the pizza restaurant, was uh, hit because it was a what they consider a regular banqueting site of Ukrainian troops and NATO mercenaries, they say. The Kremlin, in a statement, said it had hit a temporary Ukrainian army command post. Uh, but they didn't say why, if it was a sensitive place such as a command post, 14-year-old twin girls Yulia and Anna Aksinchenko and another 17-year-old child uh, were there. So answer me that, trolls. What were they? What were those kids doing at, a, at a, an army command post? Or do you just enjoy murdering civilians? Secondly, next one. One of Russia's warplanes that was reported to be shot down in the mad dash on Saturday by the, the Wagner Rebellion, whatever we're calling it, was a, a special mission aircraft with a key role in Russia's war, according to Britain's MOD. So today's uh, Defence Intelligence update, the MOD said Wagner had reportedly shot down an Aleutian IL-22M aircraft as part of a relatively small fleet. There's only 12 of those M versions, and we think only about 30 IL-22s in the in the fleet. Um, but MOD, British MOD is saying they are, this one, the 22M, is heavily utilised for both airborne command and control and radio relay tasks. So airborne command and control, basically, it's bring your own air traffic control in areas where you you don't have an air traffic control and you need to coordinate your, your air assets and make sure they don't bang into each other and all that kind of stuff. You bring your own bubble of air traffic control, and that's what this thing was doing. Um, now, footage on social media, you'll, you'll find it, showed, showed an aircraft which is thought to be the Aleutian just falling from the sky in flames. This is on Saturday in the vicinity of, uh, of Varnage. And um, it was reported that all 10 occupants on board were killed. And we think at least five, maybe six other military helicopters, including the sophisticated KA-52 Alligator gunships, were also thought to be shot down. Uh, all, all part of Wagner's uh, Wagner's dash north. So on the on the uh, the update, the MOD said as high value assets they have operated within the safety of Russian airspace. This is the Aleutians they're talking about now, far beyond the range of Ukrainian air defence systems. The loss of this aircraft is likely to have a negative impact on Russian air and land operations. In the short term, the psychological shock of losing a large number of aircrew in this manner will almost certainly damage morale within the Russian aerospace force. They then go on talking about the longer term and say there is a possibility that current tasking levels may have to be reduced to safely manage the remaining fleet. This will likely undermine Russia's ability to command and coordinate its forces, particularly during periods of high-tempo operations i mean it is it is very tricky coordinating all that uh, all that stuff so if they've only got 11 now and you can imagine from that you'd expect in in a western military from 11 aircraft you've probably you should probably expect six or seven to be serviceable at any one time and then probably of those maybe four three or four to be ready to go today for tasking crewed up fueled all the rest of it so it does have an impact i know you know losing one if you've got 12 is not uh, is not huge, but uh, you know it, it does all does all count. 
Now, finally, Switzerland has blocked the gifting of 96 non-operational Leopard 1 tanks that are currently stored in Italy. They are the property of the Swiss arms manufacturer, Raug. Um, the proposal was that these vehicles are going to be refurbished in Germany and then sent to Ukraine. The Swiss government said the request is, quote, inconsistent with applicable law. Uh, and that's because Switzerland uh, as a neutral, or is a neutral country which can't approve arms sales uh, bound for an active conflict zone, which does kind of beg the question, why make the weapons in the first place? Uh, maybe it's just because it brings in a ton of cash while others defend the system's values and the international order you're happy to take profit from. But, you know, who, who knows? Um, but to show how ridiculous this stance is, I would just ask you to hold in your mind the decision some time ago, unconnected from today, but a separate decision some weeks ago that did get the full backing of the Swiss government, the decision to send 25 Leopard 2 tanks that that are currently in service in the Swiss army, they're going to go to Germany next year. Now, Germany has promised not to send those tanks to Ukraine, but they will fill gaps in the German military because Germany is sending a load of other Leopard 2s to Ukraine. I mean, it is, we are properly dancing on a head of a pin here. Um, I would invite you to have a look at Stanley Pignall, who writes for The Economist. He's he's tweeted today, reminding us of a, an article he wrote in January. I've retweeted it, so if you're not following Stanley or The Economist, have a look at my feed and you'll, you'll see the link there. Um, he wrote an article in January which says, Switzerland's policy of neutrality in the face of such uh, disregard by Russia for human life and the acceptable conduct in the modern world uh, is looking naive or worse So Switzerland recently reviewed its neutrality doctrine and decided to stick with it and says it will only supply hardware to Ukraine if the UN Security Council condemn Russia, which, you know, that's not going to happen for as long as Russia is there and has veto power. We can talk about whether they should still be. But, um, yeah, that is a that is a longer conversation. They're not going to veto that at the moment. So. All Switzerland's really done so far is to mirror the sanctions that have been imposed by the EU. And even that step has been criticised by some in the in the Swiss sort of government. So Stanley Pignall says neutrality looks increasingly like a simplistic answer to complex geopolitical questions. The security of Europe is being fought over in Ukrainian trenches. Any country on the continent declaring itself neutral about the outcome is announcing that its own safety is of scant concern. Non-neutrals resent this. Their guns are implicitly defending neutrals, which get to splurge on more butter and boast of their virtue to boot. Now, in a related issue today, Austrian Chancellor Karl Nehammer has said neutral EU countries object to giving Ukraine outright security assurances. Mr Nehammer is in Brussels at a meeting of other EU government leaders. Speaking before that meeting, he said, for us as neutral stakes, it is clear we can't give security guarantees. Austria, Ireland, Malta and Cyprus have made it clear they have objections. The role of the neutral status needs to be explicitly taken into account. We will certainly discuss this and we will find formulations that will be acceptable for us as well. It just throws the whole issue of neutrality into into sharp focus. And it's one thing to be neutral i think when there's not a war in europe and the egregious abuse of uh, international norms that we're seeing i think we're in a different place now this conversation seems to be gathering pace there francis i know you'll have some views on this what do you say on that and what else is uh, crossing your desk today well thanks dom of course the other country that neutrality debate is highly relevant to is ireland and i know we have many irish listeners so very keen to hear their perspectives on this too 
The concept of Irish neutrality has a rich and intricate history, which I don't have time to go into in detail now. But whilst Irish military forces have actively participated in UN peacekeeping missions, Ireland itself has a commitment not to deploy its forces overseas without a specific resolution from the UN Security Council. And in practice, of course, that means that due to the power of veto held by countries like Russia, reaching a unanimous decision is almost impossible on the Council and thereby... Ireland, if it wanted to, is not really able to do much more to assist Ukraine. And there has been interesting movement, actually, amongst Irish leaders towards wanting to do more, I think. But um, as I say, their hands are tied by this uh, sort of understanding of their neutrality. Now, on the comment desk, we're hoping to publish an article this week by the former UK Defence Secretary, Sir Michael Fallon, who suggests there is potential for Ireland to contribute further to enhancing Europe's security. There is, of course, the North Sea Security Pact that Belgium, the UK, Denmark, France, Germany, the Netherlands are all involved in. I think he thinks that they can do more to be involved in that. And he really underlines a crucial point here which I haven't read elsewhere and which is why we're keen to uh, to get it in print is that the Irish Sea is very susceptible to Russia's negative influence. So approximately 75% of transatlantic cables pass through or near Ireland's exclusive economic area. Moreover, Ireland serves as a host to a third of Europe's data companies and houses the headquarters of numerous important tech firms. So you've got those vulnerabilities as well as its energy infrastructure, which is exposed to Russian threats. And so there is, I think, very much conversations taking place at the moment about how Ireland, if it wants to do more, can do more. And indeed, should it be doing more given these vulnerabilities, which we have, as I say, touched on in the past, but not quite gone into that level of granular detail. But turning to updates, I spoke yesterday about the fallout from the weekend. And there are more as a consequence. So General Sergei Sorovkin, who, as we discussed, is reported to potentially have known about the failed Wagner mutiny, according to some US intelligence sources, has not been seen since Saturday. And speculation has emerged this morning that he's actually been arrested. So officials are trying to establish whether the man nicknamed General Armageddon, of course, a man we've talked about a lot on the pod, had a close relationship with Prigozhin and whether he actually, as a consequence of that, knew about the mutiny. So the Ministry of Defence in Russia has told the Moscow Times that he has actually been arrested, or at least officials there have, but we haven't been able to independently verify that. One source alleged that Sorovkin has chosen the side of Prigozhin in the mutiny, and there's fear that he was part of what they call a Prigozhin coalition. Again, all of this must stress is speculation. And I know that James will have more thoughts on this. But it's quite interesting looking at the remarks that Sorovkin put out over the weekend when the incident was occurring. So he was appealing to Wagner publicly, saying, we fought together with you, took risks, we won together. We are of the same blood. We are warriors. I urge you to stop. The enemy is just waiting for the internal political situation to escalate in our country. So publicly, he was coming out to condemn Wagner. But perhaps this was a 
a ruse uh, and that really he was quietly supporting them. We just don't know. We have no way of knowing yet. But suffice to say, it's extremely helpful for the Ukrainians to have the Russian state having to question the loyalty of these senior military figures. Many are asking, how can an army function effectively in these circumstances? And I'll come back to that in my final thoughts. Now, we've also just heard in the last 30 minutes or so that Sorovkin's deputy, Colonel General Andrei Yudin, has reportedly been fired from the army. And if that's true, then it would have seemed to verify this argument that Sorovkin is now very much out of favour and may have been arrested himself. Now, returning to Prigozhin specifically and his exile in Belarus, the exiled Belarusian opposition leader Svetlana Tikhanovskaya has said that Lukashenko could betray Prigozhin despite his offer of refuge following the mutiny over the weekend. So she's given an interview with AFP in Brussels and has said that they are not allies. They cannot trust each other. At any moment, Lukashenko can betray Prigozhin. Prigozhin can betray Lukashenko. And of course, we hypothesised on that very question yesterday. But for her, she goes further and says says that this is really about personal survival for Lukashenko. She says he didn't act just to save Putin's face or save Prigozhin or not to let the civil war happen in Russia. He took care for his personal survival because Lukashenko knows that if the powers in Russia are scrambling, it will be Lukashenko who will be next. And again, that does tally with our analysis on Wednesday, but strong remarks from her. An unstable Putin is certainly bad news for Lukashenko, given the vital support that he receives from Russia. Though there is reason to think that he may well rue the invitation of Prigozhin into the country, depending on what happens next. But as I say, I know James will have more reflections on this. Yeah, thanks, Francis. We'll turn to James uh, shortly. I should just say that we're going to put up our weekly Defence in Depth video today, uh, later on today, about six o'clock London time. I didn't do it this week. I was away Monday, Tuesday. So hand over. I said last week to a special guest so I can reveal that that's uh, Aliona. Aliona Olivko, friend friend to the pod. She's going to be taking us through the the new characters that we are starting to hear. I mean, we've met um, Svetlana Sikhanouskaya before, the, the exiled Belarusian, the, the legitimate winner of the 2020 election. But some of these other names, um, Sorovkin and some of the other people uh, close to close to Putin we've not really met before. Aion is going to take us through these these characters, bring them to life, because I think we're going to hear more about them. So we need to need to familiarise ourselves with them. But James, uh, I mean, fascinating ideas now. And you've written a piece. What now for Prigozhin and, and how can he stay alive? Uh, James, what do you think? That piece I wrote, I wrote it on, on Monday and Tuesday. And it was, it was well, it, by its very nature, it was very speculative because at the time I, I wrote it, Prigozhin's whereabouts are still unknown. He's now obviously confirmed to have flown into uh, Minsk to start his time in exile. I mean, I haven't seen any strong reporting out of Minsk about what, you know, the sort of life he's leading. But he, it's, it's important to remember two things. What happens to Wagner Group now and uh, the rest of Prigozhin's media empire, internet troll empire, if you want, and also what we can expect of him in exile, like, is he going to be under house arrest? Is he going to be free to to, to roam around, etc.? And in that story I wrote a couple of days ago, I was really trying to remind readers that there is already a relatively high-profile 
former Soviet president in exile, living in exile in Minsk, and that's Kodomanbak Bakiev. He's a former Kyrgyz president between 2005 and 2010, uh, when he was unseated in, in a revolution. And Minsk was negotiated as his way out. Prigozhin was given that option uh, over the weekend as well. Now, Bakiev, who has been imprisoned uh, in absentia in Bishkek, in, in Kyrgyzstan, for, for various crimes and massive uh, corruption, etc., has been able to lead a relatively free life, it appears, in, in Belarus. We've seen photos of him uh, meeting Lukashenko several times, inspecting uh, plans to expand the city. Lukashenko, on, on his 70th birthday, on Bakiev's 70th birthday in 2019, even gave him a big uh, painting of, of, nomad, of nomads, and a, and a knife, this sort of thing. And this is all broadcast live. Uh, well, not live, but it was broadcast on, on the Belarusian TV. So we know that Lukashenko enjoys the limelight. He's already used Bakiev, his his um, exile guest, previously. And I would expect him to do the same with uh, Prigozhin, who's obviously a much more high-profile character. Indeed, he's even said he gave a sort of rather rambling and long briefing to his officials, I think it was on Tuesday, about this role that he says he played in, in talking Prigozhin down from uh, attacking the Kremlin on Saturday. And in that rambling uh, explanation, he did say he was looking forward to learning about Wagner's experience in um, Ukraine. So I think this is all hinting at maybe Prigozhin is going to, is going to have some relative freedom. I mean, it's, it's too early to be sure, obviously. Uh, and maybe we will see photos of him and Lukashenko talking or, or even shaking hands. That sort of thing. Now, the impact that is going to have in the Kremlin and on Putin is going to be really interesting to see. Like um, Francis and Dom have already said, Lukashenko is on, on thin ice here. Um, Prigrozhin, in my analysis slightly i mean he he obviously went against putin his, his master but it was a rebellion in my analysis that that got out of hand went too far it was never meant to end up uh, 120 miles from from moscow but he has become putin's you know what he, he betrayed putin putin does not stand for for traitors so if lukashenko is seen giving uh Pigrosian too warm a welcome that will have implications so there's that. And the other, the other thing to uh, to really consider is what happens to Wagner next. Now, really quickly, as our listeners know, Wagner operates many different services for the Kremlin. One, one of the big ones is um, the sort of autocratic consultancy service that it, that it offers uh, primarily in Africa to various countries where the various um, leaders of these African countries employ various parts of Wagner or Concord Group and another one of Prigozhin's outfits in different roles. It could be uh, how to fix an election without doing it too too blatantly. It could be simply supplying bodyguards or it could be hiring uh, uh, ruthless mercenary fighting units to take on uh, your enemies. So there's a whole suite of different things. So in return, Wagner get various mining rights and they get paid hard cash as well. But this is a very lucrative business for the um, Kremlin, not only does it bring in a lot of cash, but it also gives them a lot of influence. And the reports I'm reading is that the Kremlin will want to continue this type of operation in Africa, but they may need to rebrand it. They may need to take 
day-to-day control or week-to-week control, whatever it is, away from Pigrosh and cut them out of the system. So again, all that all that is happening. I, I did read a report this morning that Wagner and Prigrogen's uh, media group, Patriot Media Group, is already looking for a new owner. So, so his empire is already being dismantled. Part of that media group was a, a troll company, which uh, famously tried to manipulate the uh, 2016 US presidential election. So, an important. Uh, and high-profile Kremlin operation, which Pogrosian had been heading, is already being taken away from him. So I think we're already starting to see his role being uh, marginalised. Thanks, James. Now, just briefly, before I go back to Francis for some more diplomatic updates, and then Hamish, I saw yesterday Putin's been in, in Dagestan. Now, stand fast the debate about, oh, was it a body double, et cetera, et cetera, because this guy was out with the crowds, mixing it, shaking hands, which is not usual Putin behaviour. But you know, did you see this? And what? why go to Dagestan? What does this mean? You can rarely get the guy out of Moscow, and yet he goes to, off to one of the, the republics. What do you think is going on there? I did see it briefly, Dom. Um, he was in Durban on the Caspian Sea case, the town I visited in 2007, UNESCO Heritage Sites. I think he just needed to be seen to be meeting the people, to have a walk around, to be closer to the action. And I think this was his way of doing that. The videos I've seen, it looked like, you know, a complete setup, et cetera, and, and jubilant crowds. But I think it was really important for him to get out and about and shown to be traveling. He, uh, you know, across Russia, not just to, you know, walk around Red Square or something. He had to get out to one of the regions. And I can't remember him making a visit to the North Caucasus, I could be wrong, uh, since the start of the war. And Durban on the Caspian Sea coast, about 100 miles or 120 miles north of the border of Azerbaijan, is really on the fringe of his domain. Uh, and I think this was just a necessary PR stunt from a president who's looking incredibly weak at the moment, humiliated. He's become an increasingly Differing source of mockery, really, in, in, in many ways in, in the Kremlin. And he needed to, to, to show the cameras that uh, some people still, you know, appreciated his time and uh, visit. I saw one suggestion saying that the proportion of fighters who are just being pulled in, given two weeks training, very loosely termed training, and shoved out to die in Ukraine are coming from the regions, not from the rich, not from the cities, not Moscow, St. Petersburg, and that he needed to go and shore up a bit of support there. I mean, do you think it was shoring up support or possibly trying to, a bit of a recruitment drive? We know he doesn't want to announce a second mobilisation, but do you think he has to go and show a bit of love to the regions because that's where the greater proportion of people who are, who are fighting and dying in the name of his ridiculous warped dream are coming from yeah you could definitely take that line i mean i do remember in september october last year when a week or so after mobilization was called there were quite large probably the some of the most serious protests in russia uh, were in dagestan in, in the capital of the dagestan's mahachkala and where mothers of the men being mobilized were really trying to stand up to the authorities the policemen so yeah, I think it maybe he's trying to show, like I said, the recruitment drive, or maybe he's just trying to show I can still go where I fancy in my domain, and you know I'm going to go to the very fringe of it where we've been uh, recruiting a lot of people and where there has been resistance. Lovely, thanks, James. Let's just quickly go back to Francis. A bit more news, Francis, from about NATO, and you're going to get your arms around the EU. I hear. 
Well, I wouldn't go quite that far, Dom. But yes, in other news, as we speculated last week, Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, is to become one of the military alliance's longest serving leaders as his term is on the verge of being extended by another year. That's according to the Times of London. Diplomatic sources have told them that an announcement will be made as soon as next week that the former Norwegian Prime Minister will remain in post until summer next year, meaning he will have held the position for a decade. And we've of course spoken on the podcast at length last week about the internal discussions around who should succeed him, tensions around certain political leaders. Of course, Ben Wallace, Defence Secretary here in the UK, was, we understand, put forward, but the French said they didn't want him. They felt it should be a European leader, an interesting dispute given the political context of Brexit and everything else. But uh, clearly they've decided they can't agree and so they want to extend Mr Stoltenberg's duration. I think many people think he has been very effective since the full-scale invasion and so as a consequence it perhaps doesn't come as a surprise that he comes across as a good compromise candidate. Now, this coincides with another interesting story from the EU, again discussed in the Times, that the EU hopes to fill the void left in Africa by the decline of the Wagner Group, which James was just talking about. As I mentioned in Saturday's bonus episode, the implosion of Wagner offers a huge opportunity, really, for the West to erode the power of one of Russia's most dangerous international outfits for its international purposes. So in the piece, the European Union's ambassador to the African Union is quoted as saying that the uncertainty over Wagner's future creates an opening for European states to re-engage with countries like Mali. She's quoted as saying it's only been a few days and analyses uh, and analysis, sorry, is still being carried out. But immediately we are looking at what a weakening of Wagner would mean. It will definitely put pressure on it in the countries where it is operating. What can they offer now? And the piece also quotes an EU security official as saying that the states see this as an opportunity to win back influence. Without Wagner, there is no delivery. And without delivery, why cooperate with them? But nonetheless, the Times does highlight how other analysts believe Wagner's role in Africa is too important for Russia to let go. They quote the Royal United Services Institute, a very prominent think tank here, that Wagner will be rebranded and operations are likely to continue because of Russia's priorities, not only to support the war, but the indirect expenses Russia has incurred as a result of the war, they will want to remain there. This is a living ecosystem that will continue to grow, but will probably do so under another name. And I should add that others worry if Wagner ends its activities in Ukraine, that may lead to an influx of tens of thousands of Wagner fighters to the continent where they could, of course, further destabilise other fragile regions. So we can't know for certain what the impact of this is, but I would argue that the story itself is the fact that we are now asking serious questions about Wagner in those places and how the West can potentially monopolise on their weakness and the fragility perhaps within the political apparatus within Russia. But staying on Europe... Poland expects the EU to help it fund measures to strengthen its eastern border as a consequence of Wagner moving into Belarus. So Poland has said they believe there are around 8,000 Wagner troops already in Belarus and are taking both temporary and permanent steps to strengthen its border, including boosting the presence of security forces and increasing fortifications. So asked today whether Brussels would help Warsaw pay for such measures, the deputy foreign minister of Poland said Poland expects it. European solidarity means supporting countries threatened with destabilisation. These safeguards need to be increased. 
an indicator, if one was necessary, of quite how seriously some countries in Europe are taking developments in Belarus. But finally, I promised yesterday a few more reflections on developments in the US that were overshadowed by the mutiny. The first is that the US Senate has introduced a resolution which proposes that the actions of Russia, Belarus or a proxy of Russia be considered as an attack on NATO if those actions lead to radioactive contamination of an ally's territory. So this is the resolution that was introduced by the Republican Senator Lindsey Graham and Democrat Richard Blumenthal. So it's explicitly designed to be bipartisan. So these senators noted that this is the first precedent since the collapse of the USSR that Russia has moved its nuclear weapons beyond its own borders. And they say it's a serious threat to global security amid the war in Ukraine. But they also emphasise the unpredictable situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is, of course, under the control of Russian occupying forces. And I'll quote from Mr. Graham directly. He says, The threat of a use of a nuclear device by Russia is real. And the best way we believe to deter it is to give them clarity, the Russians, as to what will happen if they do that. And our message is to those around Putin. If you do this, if you follow his orders, if he ever gives them, you can expect a massive response from NATO. You will be at war with NATO. And indeed, his Democratic counterpart echoes this and then says that if Putin's military risks total obliteration, they will be reckless and irrational to resort to any nuclear warfare of any kind. And they suggest that the Biden administration conduct consultations with leaders of other countries in Europe and consider actions to minimise the threat to civilian population and prepare a diplomatic and military response that tallies with the severity of the situation, particularly on Zaporizhia. To stress, this is highly unlikely to become law, but it is designed to send a clear signal about what tactical nukes would mean and any use of a staged nuclear incident at Zaporizhia. For reasons that regular listeners will know, I personally welcome this. I still think many, too many, see it as inconceivable that Russia would stage some kind of incident at Zaporizhia. But sources that I trust say otherwise. So it's surely right for Western powers to make clear its red lines regarding these kind of incidents and in doing so potentially deter them. But the other story from the US relates to the remarks of President Obama in the interview with CNN that he gave a few days ago. He was defending his administration's reaction to the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and argued that the full-scale invasion launched by Putin last year came in a very different context. So when he was reflecting on 2014, he says, and I quote, both myself but also Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, who I give enormous credit for, had to pull in a lot of other Europeans kicking and screaming to impose the sanctions that we did and to prevent Putin from continuing through the Donbass and to the rest of Ukraine. Given both where Ukraine was at the time and where the European mindset was at the time, we held the line. And he goes further. He says it was a different Ukraine then, which is something strongly contested by many Ukrainians, both in the Ukrainian government and who are commentating on this, who argue that there is actually no fundamental difference in 2014 between what's happened then and has happened in 2022, only a difference in perception and an understanding of Ukraine that has increased in the years since. 
Critics of Obama point to his earlier remarks too regarding the threat posed by Russia. Politico have done a piece pulling out some of those quotes. When he was campaigning for re-election in 2012, he dismissed his Republican opponent Mitt Romney for being out of touch with the realities of American foreign policy after Romney called Russia the US's number one geopolitical foe. And I'll quote from Obama. He said to Mitt Romney, when you were asked what's the biggest threat facing America, you said Russia, not Al-Qaeda. You said Russia. The 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back because the Cold War's been over for 20 years. And many people are now saying that in retrospect, perhaps Romney was right as to the threat that Russia posed relative to Al-Qaeda. I personally will need to reread Obama's memoir on this, which was obviously written long before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year. All that I will say is that given the events of the past year and a half and its enormous ramifications for geopolitics, perhaps the most significant foreign policy event since 9-11, the invasion of Crimea in 2014 does not feature prominently in that book. Syria looms much larger And he admits, as I've talked about in the past, that the vote in the House of Commons here in Britain deterred him from following through with his administration's red lines on chemical warfare. So I think that's interesting. And it will be very interesting indeed to see whether in volume two, which I think he's writing at the moment, the events in Ukraine trigger a reassessment and more analysis of exactly what occurred. But I think it is very revealing that one doesn't leave that book and think, wow, Ukraine was one of the major events. It it just doesn't come across that way. He does, though, um, put forward some very interesting descriptions of what it was like one-on-one with Putin. And I remember there's one bit where he talks about how Putin would sit him down and just sort of rant at him for an hour, which, again, is quite revealing about what Putin saw as the failures of American foreign policy with regard to Russia. But I imagine Hamish will also have some very interesting thoughts on these, in, the impact of this resolution with regard to Zaporizhia. Thanks, Francis. Certainly will be. Uh, let's turn now to Hamish, DBG. Hamish to Brent Gordon. Hamish, very welcome back on the pod. Uh, we've been talking today, we've had Wagner, we've had Lukashenko, we've had a bit of Zaporizhia, nukes in general. Now, linking all of that is the one guy we started off talking about, Sorovkin. You uh, had close quarters interaction with him in Syria. So why don't we start there and I'd be interested in all your thoughts on the issues we've been discussing and then maybe finish off with a question that's come from a number of listeners and thanks so much for getting in touch with us talking about the Ukrainian counter-offensive. How on earth can you get through an obstacle belt of minefields, tank ditches and all the rest of it? But let's start with Sorovkin. Yeah, absolutely. I think Sorovkin is a really interesting character. Um, As I said, I saw him in Syria his uh, unconventional violence that he developed there, we then saw, we are seeing at the moment um, in Ukraine. Sorovkin is a really evil person, but he's a very effective commander. I find it astounding that, um, you know, at this time when the Russian army are performing so badly, Sorovkin and Prigozhin, who've both been very effective in the field and their close associates in this Kremlin purge, have been dismissed. And when you think that uh, Shoigu, the defence minister, and Gerasimov, the the commander of the military, are in effect desk johnnies, um, what I mean by that is, you know, they've got loads of medals, but not many of them for actually fighting. This, I think, will have a really uh, serious impact on the Russian military. 
So if I go hopefully seamlessly into the next piece and what Francis is saying about the Senate move to not hopefully bring into law, but perhaps not, that any any use of tactical nuclear weapons or blowing up a Zaporizhia would be an Article 5, in other words, bringing NATO in. I think that is the most powerful thing that's happened in the international community to reduce this. But I'd just like to take those two separately. First of all, there is speculation. There is rumour. And I believe my assessment is that there probably aren't any tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus. The Russians are using the tactical nukes to try and put pressure on Europe, try and frighten European leaders, particularly the Germans, into not supporting. And that just hasn't worked. The idea of giving Lukashenko and now potentially Prigozhin, because I think the other thing that um, I I missed half of the pod yesterday, I was at the Chalk Valley History Festival, um, but Lukashenko suggested he quite would like um, the Wagner uh, troops uh, as his sort of private army and maybe Prigozhin, you know, getting involved in there as well. I cannot believe that Putin would allow Lukashenko and now essentially Prigozhin, you know, to have a finger on a red button to use tactical nukes because if things implode even more than they are at the moment, Lukashenko might well, you know, point those nukes in the other direction. The piece on Zaporizhia, uh, which I advise a lot of people in Europe and elsewhere who who are deeply concerned about any sort of uh, environmental accident or or, or particularly nuclear accident, speaking to a lot of people in Kyiv yesterday. And of course, I think it was over the weekend that the Ukraine intelligence service gave their report on what, uh, what, what they assessed to be um, Russian activity in, in Zaporizhia and wiring it with explosives and mines. Now, they were absolutely right about the dam. Uh, and I, I think on the pod, we called it at the time as well, that it was um, you know, a Ru- Russian-produced explosion. So they were right in the dam. Everybody, everybody else who's briefing me and, and I speak to seem to agree with them. So the move by the Americans to, to really point this out that it would be, you know, tantamount to getting NATO fully engaged in the, in the war is is absolutely the right thing that they can do. The only thing I would say, of course, it's also highly deniable, you know, that the Russians have been building up and building up that, um, you know, the, the Ukrainians are going to blow it up uh, and, it, you know, and their weight of propaganda and disinformation is, is absolutely torrential. Um, so again, that that is where, where is concern, and I suppose just about leading into your your next question, Dom, you know the tactical significance of of, of an accident in inverted commas at Zaporizhia uh, on the um, on the offensive would have a similar impact to that of blowing up the dam. In other words, constricting and channeling and forcing the Ukraine forces into a certain area, which is why in, in the piece I wrote for the paper yesterday, I'm sort of suggesting that now is the time to let the shackles off the Ukrainian offensive and let them attack at a time and place and a direction of their choosing, which may or may not include an incursion into Russia. I mean, that's interesting, the idea about the incursion in, into Russia. Just before you talk about what that 
movement on the ground might look like and getting through obstacle belts. Do you want to just address one of the questions that, that one of the listeners just put in the in the comment section? And thank you for doing so, Dennis. He questions your description of Sorovkin and Prigozhin as effective. Do you want to just take us back over that and give a little bit more detail as to why you say that? Absolutely. I mean, effective might be the wrong word, but you know, when you have no morals or scruples um, and you have no concern for collateral damage or civilian casualties, you can pretty much do what you like. And in Syria, uh, Sorovkin, when he took over, he, he instigated this attack of attacking hospitals, attacking schools, attacking infrastructure, and really and burning civilians out of their homes, which actually sort of worked in Syria for the most part. When you then look at, at Ukraine, the fact Sorovkin is just in the trenches throwing more and more manpower He's been effective in preventing thus far the counteroffensive. Now, he and Prigozhin have been at the front line doing their stuff. Now, Putin and Shaigu and Gerasimov, very similar to some other sort of uh, autocratic tyrants like uh, Hitler and others, you know, commanding from far back. So when I say effective, I mean they're at the front line. They are ordering troops around and they have no concern over casualties so they can hold the line just by plugging it almost with human flesh, the meat grinder, as we said. So effective might be the wrong word, but, um, you know, had they fought with some sort of constraint, which the constraint we're, we, the constraint that the Ukraine forces are on at the moment, um, I'm sure they would have capitulated a long time ago. Hamish, could you turn your attention, please, to what is an obstacle belt? We talk about this Russian defensive line. We think in the south around the Zaporizhia area, we think Ukraine have kind of hit the first line of defence and maybe in some areas got through that. But the next, the big line, the second line of defence is about 20 k's, we think-ish. South numbers very sketchy as to quite who's where. But we think the second line, the main line of defence is still there and still intact. Whether or not Russia have the personnel to man it, uh, and that obviously is is critical, uh, we don't know. But but Hamish, can you just talk us through briefly what a defensive line looks like and how you get an armoured force through it? Yeah, Dom, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the most challenging operations of war. There are so many factors that come into it to make it successful. Those of us who went through the breach in the first Gulf War back in the early 90s, we had air superiority, we had artillery superiority, uh, we did it all at night um, and had many, many, many routes. So I think one of the challenges is we've, I think we've already, you've already described this defence. You've got these dragon's teeth, uh, massive concrete blocks. You've then got um, trenches and minefields. Mines are really one, uh, along with drones, mines are what are defining or anti-tank mines are, are almost defining this conflict. And every, almost every picture that you see on social media at the moment is, is a tank or an armoured vehicle being blown up by mines. So in order to be successful, um, there are a number of things. Air superiority to start with. Well, the Ukrainians don't have that at the moment. You can counter that a little bit by the night. And we've talked about the night being being really where Ukraine has an advantage with the superior night sites um, and, and also training. You know, there were so many red trousered um, retired colonels at, at the Chalk Valley History Festival last night 
um, uh, discussing tanks and all the rest of it and telling me that, you know, it is the end of armor. But actually, um, these people have, have, have not operated in this type of environment, certainly not recently. So that the, the night is the friend. So that, in a way, might counter some of the air. But you need to breach the minefields. In order to do that, you need some sort of cover, masses, again, massive artillery um, and other screens. But, but breaching it, I'm sure you've seen the pictures of you know, it, it, the Brits. We have something called a giant viper, which is a, a massive, uh, long, explosive um, uh, cable, if you like. goes out to about 200 metres, blows, basically blows the mines out of the way. But it then requires for a, 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 a tank with a dozer blade, a mine plow on the front, to go and to go and push the remaining mines out of the way, and then the remaining force can go through it. But you need a lot of these lines because you know a, a tank could strike a mine as it goes through and then block that, and then you you can't develop that sort of um, that momentum which, which you need. So it is it is hugely challenging. And the Ukrainians, I think, hitherto, and I won't go over old ground, have been trying to find the place to do it. And once they find it, what, what I would say, and what I did say to people last night, is that you know the Russians are, are not have not; they're just throwing manpower and they're throwing tanks into the front with little training. We are pretty certain that the Ukrainian military have been doing a lot of combined arms training over the last three months because they've had all the Western kit for about that time. And that, I'm sure, is all about the coordination, as, as I said, between artillery, infantry and tanks, and also practicing to breach these de- defences. So that is the most challenging thing. And, and once they get through them, as you say, not, not all of them be manned, and I'm sure they're finding where they're light, they can then crack on um, at great speed if they were able to manoeuvre around them, then things might accelerate. Now, perhaps it's a it's a discussion for an, for another pod, but um, when one looked at the the ease of manoeuvre of of admittedly the Wagner Group all around Russia, uh, particularly in the south, one just wonders, you know, wh- what. What is there to prevent them doing that, apart from the political expedient that NATO and particularly the US and the UK have not wanted any Western kit used on Russian soil, although you could argue that that's already happened. And now that uh, Ukraine uh, has retaken back areas of the Donbass that that, the, uh, that um, Russia annexed in 2014, that has already happened. But it is hugely challenging. And it, and it will take time, and uh, and that's why. But I think all the turmoil that's happening at the moment, getting rid of your best field commanders, hopefully that'll only benefit the Ukrainians. Lovely. Thanks, Hamish. We're going to start moving towards final thoughts now. But I just, as you were speaking there, just reminded me. I, so last night I was at the, um, uh, I was invited to the US Ambassador's Pad, uh, Winfield House here in Regent's Park in London. Um, I'd like to say it was just, just me and the ambassador, but no, there was about, you know, two or three hundred other people there. Um, uh, I mean, it's no chalk valley, uh, chalk, whatever, literary festival, but pff, hey, you know, we got there. Um it was it was great. Um, the the peach Melbourne whiskey cocktails took took a bit of getting used to, but I I put the effort in and got there in the end. Uh, I was speaking to some very senior military and civilian uh, personnel, UK and US, and they were the big the big point that they were all making basically independently of each other was how we in the West have forgotten the need for mass. We've forgotten 
we just assume that it's going to be there. Not only that we'll have the stuff on the start line, and that takes into account, well, it completely ignores the fact of being um, interdicted or you know hit by the enemy in your logistic bases and your your supply lines and all the rest. Of it. We just assume that we'll have all our tanks at the start line on day one of a day one of a war. But then that actually the enemy are going to make some some pretty basic mistakes, and and we are not going to suffer. Or the the ratios of our own forces being worn down are, are woefully out of date. This war has shown that um, yes, there's a lot of technology and drones and uh, exciting cybery satellite stuff, but actually, you know, heavy metal it it's, um, it it really does still matter in this in this day and age. That was my big takeaway. Well, that and a hangover anyway. But anyway, um, final thoughts. Let's roll around. Final thoughts, Francis. Can we come to you first, please? Thanks, Dom. Just a quick one from me today. You'll be pleased to hear. I've heard some people saying that the mutiny ended up being a damp squib, that it's actually changed very little. I want to disagree with that. Just look already, as we've talked about today, what it's done to Russia's state apparatus, including how it's dealing with the army. It's had a huge destabilising impact there. I question strongly how effective an army can operate under these conditions. And indeed, retired Army Major General Mick Ryan has written on Twitter today that in his view, the ripples from the mutiny in Russia over the weekend will continue to propagate across Russian systems. And he talks about how it remains too early to make a full assessment of how the mutiny will impact battlefield operations. But he does believe there will be severe repercussions. He talks about how within the Russian military, there's a deep discomfort among its leaders and about the loyalty of different units, the unease amongst senior leaders about who they can trust in their train of command, almost certainly going to have damaging impacts in the long run. And as we've already talked about on the podcast and speculated, it means that he may well be forced, Putin, so as to not be seen giving in to the mutiny to keep in ineffective leaders like Shoigu, who was the target of Prigozhin's ire. That also may boost the Ukrainians in the weeks and months ahead. And I agree with Mick Ryan's analysis. And that's before we even talk about the reputational damage of Putin standing in the eyes of the world. As I've said before, it may be weeks, months, years, maybe even decades before we can measure the full impact of the events of that weekend. Sometimes the impacts can be very hard to read, as was the case with the Kornilov affair in 1917, which I spoke about at the weekend. At the time, that was deemed a triumph for Kerensky's provisional government, deterring that coup. Only a couple of months later did it become clear that it had fatally undermined the government and unleashed forces, the Bolsheviks, that would eventually bring him down. So I'm convinced that regardless how it may seem at this moment, that will be one of the key moments of the war so far. We just don't yet know exactly how it will be so. But I don't believe history books will be written that ignore the fundamental changes that will have occurred internally as a consequence of that event. Thanks, Francis. James, please. I've been reporting this since Friday evening. I, I've watched it unfold in real time. Um, and um, uh, it, it's it's a theory that I've been knocking around on the fringes. And um, uh, I think it's important to talk about now because of recent events. Um, it's it's my sort of contention and my, my speculation that 
the FSB and the Ministry, the Russian Ministry of Defence, knew that this um, uh, mutiny was was going to happen. That's kind of half been confirmed already in in the me- in the media media reports, and that they decided to use it to their advantage. So, uh, listeners have to remember that they really hated Prigozhin. They really hated him. He's he causing a huge problem for them, um, and they needed to destroy him. The way they were going to destroy him was destroying his relationship with Putin. That was Prigozhin's main trump card. Now, we know that Prigozhin said that he he organised this mutiny to prove to the Ministry of Defence uh, that he was, you know, that Wagner Group should, should, should be maintained, etc., and to avoid being subverted to them. I think that the FSB and, 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 uh, and the Russian Ministry of Defence decided to open the way for Prigozhin, to let him get... You know, so so that his 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 rebellion was too successful, and that he was then then able to 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 get within 120 miles of of Moscow, scaring Putin, who denounced him publicly on TV, and that and then their trap was shut. Uh, they had destroyed that relationship. And if you look at the video of uh, Surovkin, now we've got to remember Surovkin uh, was an ally of Prigozhin. Um, and he had been demoted already by the Ministry of Defence in January. If you look at his video that he put out, I think it was like very quickly after Prigozhin announced his um, rebellion. It was about two hours afterwards. And he, his, there are certain indications which suggest that he'd already been arrested and he was doing, making this video under pressure. His body language was was very hunched over, you know, very unusual for him. His voice was 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 one was also uneven. So 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 that was one. But two uh, bigger indicators for me was he wasn't wearing any epaulets um, on his shoulders, showing his rank. Uh, and that for me is the first time we've seen a, a Russian general w- without those those ranks on on his shoulders. So maybe he'd already been stripped of his ranks. So as that, and also he was unshaven. Now I'd never seen. Um, a Russian general unshaven, and I've never seen a Sorovikin unshaven before. Um, and I think you have to look at these little indicators, which to me suggest he'd already been arrested several hours earlier, and he was making this uh, video under duress. Um, it's inconceivable to me, it was inconceivable at the time to me, that the FSB, which is much maligned, etc., um, but it's still very effective at human intelligence, didn't know about um, a mutiny which is coming from uh, a group of mercenaries who'd been knocking around, several thousand of them knocking around in their camps in Donbass for several weeks. I, 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 that, that makes no sense to me. I think they would have known about it. I think they allowed it to happen because they knew that this was their chance to destroy Prigozhin and ruin his relationship with Putin. To do that, they also had to arrest uh, Sulevkin, uh beforehand and make sure he got this video out. I think that's, that's what we've been watching happening. That's absolutely fascinating stuff. Thanks, James. Hamish, would you like the final final thought, please? Just picking up on your point about heavy metal, it was the Land Warfare Conference, the British Army sort of conference this week, and a uh, contemporary of mine, um, General Patrick Saunders, he obviously did rather better than me, was really saying what you were saying, Dom. Um, I'm a little bit perturbed today to hear Debs Haynes from Sky News suggesting that he actually might be losing post early. So I hope that is not talking truth to power because we need people like Patrick around um, to to make it happen. But uh, my final thing is I was plugging this amazing pod all night last night. So I will plug the Chalk Valley History Festival goes on until Sunday. Really most of the best or a lot of the best uh, historians in the country are there. Uh, lots of very interesting people. If you're in the Southwest, pop along.
thank you, Dom, Francis, James and Hamish. This is regular host David Knowles. Last week in Kiev, I caught up with Angelika Babi. Angelika works for the UHARTS Foundation. We've interviewed their CEO, Yuri Tukarski, several times on this podcast. Angelika was kind enough to show me parts of Kiev that I hadn't actually seen before. While walking around the city, I took the opportunity to ask her a few questions about her life in the last few months. Here's our conversation. Angelika, we're in a really spectacular part of Kiev. Can you just describe what, what we're looking at? Yeah. What we're next to. Yeah, of course. We are now in the some park area. It's called Volodymyrska Hirka or Volodymyrska Hills. I don't know because it's really place with, with some hills. And then we have uh, some monuments of person. It's Volodymyr Veliki, Volodymyr Bika, I think it can be. Just... Volodymyr the Great, yeah. Yeah, the Great, yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, it's a person who are uh, brings to Kiev Rus the Christianity religion. And it's like a small legend that it was like right here where we are standing now then uh, people is uh, take this religion in the near the river Dnipro. so yeah it's a good place now for for walking for uh, i don't know relaxing uh, walk with families uh, have a picnic now it's uh, really beautiful because you will see, you can see the Dnipro river huge and uh, green trees uh, and, and look at that and opposite us uh, over the Dnipro is a sort of collection of islands covered in forest. You were telling me a little bit about them. This is sort of the, the party scene for, for young people. I can't believe how old that makes me sound <laughs> saying that. The party scene for you. Tell yeah. us about the party scene. Yeah, of <laughs> course. It's really small islands uh, near the Dnipro with beach, uh, with, with uh, I don't know, it's a couple beaches here. And uh, young people love this area in the summer because it's really cool parties here can be and they are they, you know, spending their times uh, mostly in the summer because it's really um, when the weather is like that, like today, it's really good to be in this in these beaches because it's like not so sunny and uh, you can just walk near the water. Before the war, it was uh, really more popular because you can spend all night here and now you can't do it. But it still is going on uh, for the 23 p.m. and that's all. <laughs> and you must go home. I um, was hearing some other people talk about this, how Kiev used to be a sort of 24-hour city with parties all the time, like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, everything's open, and now that's obviously not the case because of the curfew. What's that been like to live through? I think uh, many people is agree with it because they don't have any, I don't know, versions and other, and other versions for this. But, yeah, uh, I think uh, everybody's missed for this and uh, they're trying to spend as much time as they have uh, the day and the evening uh, to rest, for rest, for, I don't know, fresh air, especially in the summer near the river or some, I don't know, green areas. Yeah, but everybody is missed it missing for about about this time and just waiting where they can spend all night and because for young people it's i think important not for only young i think for everybody who loves it (laughs) could you tell us a little bit about how your life has changed over the past few months i mean international audiences will know just how badly bombarded kiev was during may Mm -hmm. um can you tell us what that was like living here and then how you know the last month in June has been different. Yeah, it was stressful because you work all day and uh, then you want to rest at night and every night it uh, uh, was really loud because of uh, missiles attack, because of, uh, I don't know, rocket attack. And 
it was without rest for for it you you every night you just uh, wake up because it's really loud and you must find a safe place in your flat or for somebody it's some with some i don't know shelter some bunkers so yeah it was horrible nobody is from my families or from my friends saying that oh my god i'm so uh, i don't know very stopped of course everybody is worried about it but everybody thinks just only uh, about positive things that uh, some days it stops and we just must to i don't know help our our army to stop it uh, that's all everybody hates more uh, our like russian it's our opponents opponents yeah 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 so uh, everybody just uh, hate them more and that's all For international listeners, again, there have been quite a few scandals with the provision of bunkers and places of you know, protection for mm-hmm. local people. What, what is it like living here? Do you have a bunker close to you? What do you do to your friends? How does that work? Yeah, uh, I have uh, the metro station uh, nearby, but uh, it's like 10 minutes walk uh, and, uh, from my house. And it's like only in some special time I can uh, go to this. Like it's like if we call it bunker because metro it's always like a more safely bunker as we can have in the city. And uh, but uh, we just check the news and if I understand that it's some dangerous nearby me and nearby area where I'm uh, now. Uh, I'm just find some place with two walls or something like that. Mostly, I was in uh, my bath, <laughs> and um, it's in like in my in my bathroom. Yeah, I I was in my bathroom because it's more safely than I don't know on the street to walk to the metro station, metro station. And uh, most of my family or friends do the same, only if it's like metro nearby you, or you can have a really good, safe place with, I don't know, it's not old uh, underground place of your building or something like that, because we have really some problems with it. So maybe more safely it's in your house, not, not some, some, somewhere. Final question from me. You mentioned earlier when we were talking as we were walking through this beautiful park that since the beginning of the full-scale invasion you'd really tried to stop speaking Russian. Could you tell us why? And also, is this, is this common amongst your friends? Are mm-hmm. you the only one? Yeah, I think uh, I'm not talking before uh, in this language. Like my all my family is uh, talking in Ukrainian like all of my life. But I know this language. I can, before the this situation, I can use sometimes it. I can, I don't know, watch the films on the, with uh, this language or listening to the Russian music or something like that. But after the full-scale scale invasion, I stopped doing it because um, it's strange for me. It's like language of aggressor of persons who are killing here uh, my people my countries and uh, uh, I just choose forget it I, I think that it's a it's a problem a little bit but I'm trying to forget but yeah actually many of my friends is changing change it because uh, they understand that uh, I think a few years and it's disappeared from our country and you must uh, understand it right now and do something to, to I don't know, um, to, to make this process more quickly and, uh, I don't know, live without anything that can describe the words Russia's, Russia, Rus, Rus. <laughs> so yeah. But just, just on that, is there any, for those of your country people who who still speak russian who speak russian to each other is there, is there any 
bad feeling between them or not? Uh, no, I think it's okay because it's like uh, they decide, I don't know, they decide to do mm-hmm. it and I uh, just understand it and hope that uh, some days they can uh, understand also all the situation and why it's important to use uh, your language, like your language of your country. But uh, it's without problems. People just can uh, speak, I don't know, uh, any language that they uh, understand, uh, use and, and that's all. Like inside of me, I just hope that some people sis also can uh, understand that it's like it's another cool to 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 do it to to speak these languages. But inside the country, uh, for people, it's not a problem. Nobody just uh, when you heard uh, that some person uh, talking in Russians, nobody is like uh, say, "Oh my God, what are you doing?" Nobody is doing here this. Is there anything we haven't spoken about that you'd want to say that you think our listeners should know? I think it's good to see you here. First of all, because it's important to show the other countries, the other peoples, how the situation is uh, is here, and so it's still important. And I hope that uh, your trip is—it's—I uh, it, don't know—it will—it's interesting for you now, and I hope our work also will be interesting for you. So, everybody who wants to visit Kiev. Oh, don't worry about nothing. Just, just, <laughs> just uh, visit, and uh, you, you can understand deeply what a situation is here now. Angelica, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Ukraine: The Latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to the Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. If you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Rachel Porter and Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.